Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. This will be our last sermon in Ephesians. We've been working on the subject of community and want to look today at community and the growth of Christ's kingdom. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. As we continue to worship, as we come into agreement with Your Word, we pray that uh, You would strengthen our hearts, that You would anoint uh, my feeble lips and take uh, uh, Your Word and quicken it to the hearts of each one. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to do something quite different this morning and preach from uh, two different passages. Um, Paul is basing a lot of his argument, and I want to show the kind of the logical flow of his argument from Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 is a, a wonderful uh, psalm on the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And in that psalm, we have Jesus Christ, who is the commander in chief. Uh, who converts the rebellious, and ironically, when he takes the rebellious captive, he gives gifts to them, and he blesses them, and he ministers to them, and counts them as his people. He loads them with all kinds of benefits, but he does command them to be loyal. He sets commanders over his army, and he directs his army's movements. And Paul, in this book, kind of pulls out some of those themes from that psalm. And he, by the way, was one of the rebellious ones who was... Uh, converted and uh, brought into friendship with Christ. And so he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord in verse 1. But he also says, we have been taken captive. He took captivity captive. He calls for our loyalty in verse 1. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And he fleshes that out uh, throughout the chapter. And I want to start with that whole concept of us being taken into captivity. And let me read verses 7 through 8. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And I want you to notice the logical connection between these two verses. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He's quoting from Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 tells us uh, why it is that Christ took us captive. The next phrase in, verse, uh, in Psalm 68 says, even among the rebellious, that the Lord might dwell there. And that's my desire, that the Lord would pull us away from our rebellious ways, that He might dwell in our midst. But uh, the whole psalm is about rebels being conquered by God's grace and once they're conquered, being weaned from their former rebellious ways. And Paul's point in quoting this verse is that God did not give us grace and He didn't give us spiritual gifts so that we could squander them on ourselves. He gave them so that we would use them wholly in the service of King Jesus. He's rec rescued us from captivity to Satan, but hey, we're captive to him. We are his bond slaves. And he's going to amplify on how it is that we serve him in verses 17 through 31. Now, I'm not going to show all of the different ways in which he draws out the themes of, of that thought, psalm, but the next two verses 
give three reasons why Christ has the right to say, your will must be 100% captive to my will. Uh, The first reason that he gives is in verse 9, because he suffered and died for us and descended down into Hades for us. He paid the price. It was a huge price and he deserves that we be decent servants. So he says, now this, he ascended... What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? And in a previous sermon uh, in Acts, I uh, went in depth on what it meant for Christ to descend down into Hades. I'm not going to deal with that here. But a second thing that gives Christ the right to demand your total service is that he ascended to his throne far above everything as our Lord. He is the King of kings and as King of the army, he deserves to be served faithfully without any reservation. Um, soldiers don't question their commanding officers. They say, yes, sir, whatever you say. And Psalm 68 portrays this king leading his army from heaven, uh, whereas Paul simply says, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens. He is far greater than any king. Uh, He has been exalted beyond anything imaginable. And so it's unimaginable that we would not serve him. And then the third reason given is that the purpose of Christ's suffering and exaltation is so that he could either fill all things or, as some translate it, fulfill all things. And the majority of times it's translated as fulfill in other passages. But just for the sake of argument, let's say that it means to fill all things. What are our options in terms of interpretation here? William Hendrickson points out that it can't mean that Jesus filled the universe with his omnipresence because he was always omnipresent. Even while he was here on earth in John 3, uh, verse 13, he said that he had descended from heaven. So he's clearly talking about his divinity there. He descended from heaven, but he said that the Son of Man also is present tense in heaven. So he was omnipresent even while he was here on earth. And if he was not omnipresent, he would not be God. He would cease to be God. And so, uh, whatever verse 10 means, it certainly means that it began to happen at the time of his ascension. It says, it was ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so, put out of your mind any concept that this is talking about Jesus' divinity uh, filling the whole universe. Of course, he's omnipresent as to his divinity, but that's not what this was talking about. Now, some Lutherans have recognized that problem. They've insisted that there was something, though, that knew that happened, and they say that Christ's flesh became omnipresent at this point, and His humanity became omnipresent, and that's why they say we can literally eat His flesh and drink His blood because His body is everywhere. It's omnipresent. And they will appeal to this verse. Now, here's the problem. If they appeal to this verse to prove that, it actually proves too much because it doesn't just say that Jesus is uh, everywhere the sacrament is, that he's in every sacrament all over the world. It says that he fills all things. So he'd be just as present in the grass and the trees and the clouds. And they don't want to say that. They want to say there's a special presence in the sacrament. Um, And so uh, I think it proves too, too much. A second problem is that the New Testament repeatedly makes Christ's body not here, but in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Acts 3.21 says that heaven must receive him till all things are restored. The angels in Acts 1 say that Jesus Christ is coming back, which implies what? He's not here. If he's coming back, uh, he's not here. Um, If his body was omnipresent, there would be no need for the second coming. In fact, omnipresence, his humanity was assimilated into his deity that way, which is a third problem, by the way. It almost obliterates his humanity. Uh, Orthodox people have said, no, he continues to be fully God and fully man. And so it can't mean that he's omnipresent as to his deity. Obviously, he's omnipresent, but he didn't become omnipresent at that point. And it doesn't mean he's omnipresent as to his humanity. Hendrickson, uh, his view is that this must be talking about Christ beginning to fill all the universe with his grace, his blessings and his transformation, the things that are in the immediate context there. And that's certainly a truth that is expressed elsewhere in the scripture. And um, I'm going to hold that and say 
you know, that's one possible uh, interpretation. I don't uh, accept that, but I think it very closely parallels my interpretation. I agree with those interpreters who say we ought to just translate this the same way that the Greek word is usually translated, fulfill. Not fill all things, but fulfill all things. In which case, Christ either fulfills all the prophecies that have been given, that's the way I take it, or that He begins to fulfill all of the tasks that God has assigned to Him as Lord and as King, as other people take it. Now, really, all three of the last uh, interpretations that I gave are just slightly different uh, shades of meaning. All of the last three interpretations indicate that it's Christ's death, His resurrection, and His ascension that reverses history. That's the, that's the turning point of history. And so we don't have to wait for the second coming for Christ to begin to fulfill all the prophecies of Scripture, like some people say, or if you take the other interpretations, you don't have to wait until the second coming for Christ to begin to make manifest His redemptive purposes throughout the whole universe. In fact, the New Testament, uh, I believe, affirms that every single prophecy is going to be fulfilled prior to the second coming. And every enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, every enemy will be subdued to His feet before the second coming. The last enemy being death, which will be swallowed up, one, when we are caught up to meet Him in the air. And so, uh, this is actually a pretty interesting verse for eschatology. Christ started the gradual process of fulfilling all of the glorious kingdom promises at His ascension. Here's how Acts 3.21 words it. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. Now, here's the important point that Paul is going to be making. Here is an incredible aspect of Christ's ministry and he's going to be saying that all these things will be fulfilled, whether it's prophecy or his, his kingdom purposes being fulfilled, only when the church gets its act together and uh, it will be fulfilled only when God's people submit themselves entirely to the king's service. Why? Well, it's because God has willed for the head to work through the body. The head is not disjoined to doing things apart from the body. He is willed to work through the body. Psalm 68 says, Your God has commanded your strength. In other words, he's asking for volunteers uh, in the army. Uh, which of you would not jump at the opportunity to drop everything you're doing and to serve Christ, if he was physically right here and he said, you know, uh, Monday, I would like you to be engaged in this service. And even if it meant losing your job, you would do exactly what he wanted you to do. It'd be an incredible offer. Well, what Paul says, based on Psalm 68, is that God is calling for volunteers. Uh, not just your ordinary volunteers, uh, it's army volunteers. It really is not an option for using your gifts for his, ser his service. But he wants you to delight in doing it. That's why he says he wants volunteers. He wants you to do it on your own. I love the way Psalm 110 words it. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. Well, that's exactly what Psalm 68 says. Your God has commanded your strength. And then there's this prayer. Strengthen, O God what you have done for us. Uh, amazing words. God enables us to do what He commands us to do. And earlier in the psalm, He had said, O God, when You went out before Your people, when You marched through the wilderness, You, O God, provided from Your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee. And so, yes, uh, we've already seen that God provides everything that we need for life and godliness, but He does those things through volunteers who have absolutely laid their lives down for the King's service. There aren't too many people in, uh, the, in Satan's army who are fleeing, like Psalm 68 says they will, because I think there are not too many committed Christians who are willing to lay their all on the altar. There aren't too many volunteers who say, Lord, I'm at your disposal. Take me and use me. Or there are too many people who take seriously that phrase, God has commanded your strength. Now, let me read you a few quotes from a former high-ranking leader in the British Communist Party who later on became a, uh, a Christian, Douglas Hyde. 
He said, the communists make far bigger demands upon their people than the average Christian organization would ever dare to make. And let me stop there just for a moment and say, it's not just the communists. Even a football coach makes far more demands upon the children and the parents than most Christian organizations would ever dare uh, to make of people. But his experience was with communism. So let me keep reading. Communists make far bigger demands upon their people than the average Christian organization would ever dare to make. As I have already noted, they believe that you, if you make big demands upon people, you will get a big response. This has made a deliberate policy on their part. They never make the small demand if they can make the big one. Contrary to what is often believed by those who have never been communists, they do not, at any rate in non-communist countries, normally achieve this by putting a gun, either real or metaphorical, at the member's head. This would not achieve its purpose. Dedication and willingness to sacrifice must be developed within a person, then drawn out of them, not forced in. Like attracts like. Those who are attracted by the dedication they see within the movement will themselves be possessed of a latent idealism, a capacity for dedication. Thus, dedication perpetuates itself. It sets the tone and pace of the movement as a whole. This being so, the movement can make big demands upon its followers knowing that the response will come. If the majority of members of an organization are half-hearted and largely inactive, then it is not surprising if others who join it soon conform to the general pattern. If the organization makes relatively few demands upon its members, and if they quite obviously feel under no obligation to give a very great deal to it, then those who join may be forgiven for supposing that this is the norm. And that is what membership entails. If, on the other hand, the majority of members from the leaders down are characterized by their single-minded devotion to the cause. If it is quite clear that the majority are giving until it hurts, putting their time, money, thought, and if necessary, life itself at its disposal, then those who consider joining will assume that this is what will be expected of them. If they nonetheless make the decision to join, they will come already conditioned to sacrifice till it hurts. It is ludicrous to suppose that half-hearted Christians can conduct a fruitful dialogue with fully dedicated communists. Individual members of the Communist Party are brought to believe that together they and others like them can change the world in their lifetime. They are convinced that this is not just a dream. When you have succeeded in making men believe that change is necessary and possible and that they are the ones who can achieve it, when you have convinced them that they and the small minority of whom they are a part can transform the world in their lifetime, you have achieved something very considerable indeed. You have put into their lives a dynamic force so powerful that you can bring them to do what would otherwise be impossible. The dull and humdrum becomes meaningful. Life becomes purposeful and immensely more worth living. To the Christian, there is an element of sheer tragedy in this that people with such potentialities should give so much energy, zeal, and dedication to such a cause, while those who believe that they have the best cause on earth often give so little to it, and their leaders are so often afraid to ask for more than the merest minimum. Now, there is a huge mistake that churches can make at this point. They could assume that the church is the programs and the ministries that maybe appear on their annual uh, reports and that the people need to sacrifice more so that these programs could grow more. I don't see a lot of programs in the New Testament. Who is the church? The church is you, right? The church is you. And my goal is not to get you to work 24 hours a day for Dominion Covenant Church my goal is to get you to live 24 hours a day for King Jesus. Okay, that's the issue. That's the issue. And I want you, uh, to, you to have a vision within this church of community that doesn't pull you away from your callings that the Lord has placed upon your heart, but energizes you in your callings, equips you and, and gives you encouragement and inspires you and helps resource you and network you. That's the thing that I think the community here needs to be involved in. Well, anyway, the book was a wake-up call to Christians to take up their cross and follow Christ and to give themselves wholeheartedly to Christ. Now, think about that. We have a word that is incredibly powerful in the Bible. 
we've got a cause that is immensely uh, energizing. Uh, we have promises from a God who cannot lie that He will advance the cause of Christ so fruitfully that He will build His church so that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But here's the issue. Christ uses you and me. This is not just going to automatically happen. The head works through the body. Every person has a part to play. And our vision needs to be far, far greater than the, the communist vision uh, that uh, drives them. Now, the book I read from is called Dedication and Leadership. We've talked about dedication, but Paul moves on to leadership. He says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I think I've already dealt adequately in the past about the nature of those gifts. I just want to point out a simple truth. If the officers of the church restrict themselves to paper shuffling and administration and budget and the things like that, they're not going to be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. In fact, I would say if they see their chief goal as trying to recruit people to serve upon programs within the church, they're not adequately preparing people for the kingdom vision that God has given to build up the body worldwide to advance the cause of Christ worldwide. I think it's far more than building up a local church. We've got to have a bigger vision. The primary reasons we have been given officers in this church is to equip you to take over the world. Okay? And I think that's where community and leadership especially comes in. In verse 12, he says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Who's the one doing the work of the ministry? It's the saints. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So dedication is not enough. We need leadership, but leadership is not enough. Uh, the, the two work together. Now, here's how Psalm 68 uh, words it using old covenant language. There is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. And Paul goes on to show how the church is strengthened over time for the incredibly huge task that he has set before us. And so we've got dedication, we've got leadership, but what does the army look like? Uh, what would a strengthened and victorious people look like? Well, I think there are five words that describe the kind of community that would turn the world upside down. And the first word is recognize. Paul is looking for a people who, first of all, recognize all that God has already done for them. In verse 7, he says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, you may feel, man, I'm just not somebody who can do much. I'm not much. And uh, I can't, you know, fight against what the world's doing over there. Let me assure you, God has strategically placed you where you are and He's given you all of the grace that you need and the giftings that you need to accomplish His purposes uh, in this life. He's made you perfectly suited for the advancement of the kingdom. Paul also wanted a people who would recognize not only what God has done for them, but the greatness of Christ who rules over history. It may look like everything is topsy-turvy, but you look at verses 8 through 10 and you see... He's exalted over all. He is the king. He is in control. And when you think about it, Christ, if you realize Christ's hand of discipline is in my life and his hand of blessing is in my life. In fact, I constantly day by day see his hand at work in my life. It'll give you a faith uh, that will make you conquerors. Daniel 11 describes a very discouraging time in history when it looked like the world had totally triumphed and the... And the church had totally bailed out. But in verse 32, Daniel says this. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. That's the bad news. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. What a great promise for people who recognize the greatness of Christ that they can bank on. Paul wants people to recognize their place in the church. There are some people who are called to be leaders. There are other people who are called to be foot soldiers. 
And uh, we need to recognize the distinctions that God has placed within the body. And we need to recognize that absolutely every person, every member uh, has a critical role to play. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, I used to apply that to the local church and think, okay, every member is key placed. And I think there's some truth to that. You know what? He's talking about the body. And there's not many bodies of Christ. There is one body and it's a worldwide body. And that recognition has huge implications. It means that though every part is for the benefit of the body, it does not necessarily mean it's for the benefit of Dominion Covenant Church per se or any other local church per se. Now, let me illustrate what I'm talking about. This past Friday, I listened to some inspiring speeches by some uh, niche uh, homeschoolers at the thing that uh, Steve invited us to. And, you know, these guys were just ordinary parents. They weren't anything super special. They're ordinary parents who are out there thinking, we've got to do something. We've got to be involved in advancing the cause of Christ's kingdom in the areas that it is weak in. And uh, one of the talks was on the history of homeschooling in Iowa. And it was especially focusing on the incredible conflict that happened between the 70s and the, and the 90s. And you know what struck me when this um, uh, older lady was speaking was that God was using ordinary moms and dads to completely overturn the tyranny of Goliath. It looked like an impossible task. God was just using ordinary moms and dads to do this. Why? Because they were volunteers in God's kingdom. They were willing to get out there and to make a difference. Very similar to what happened here in Nebraska. Um, It wasn't a majority and most of the people weren't particularly gifted people. They were just available. They were willing to be used. They recognized I'm weak, but I can't hide my home any longer. I can't shut up any longer. I've got to get out there and do something. Some of the first people that had to go to court, they were pretty lonely folks because nobody came to their aid. But finally, there was one case, and I forget which case it was, but there was one case where the people finally decided, look, we have got to get out there and help them. And so crowds began to come to the courtrooms and people began to talk to their legislators and start to make friends and make their friendly face known to the point where God did a miracle and he changed things around. Now, it was not a majority. God rarely wins his battles through the majorities, uh, but he loves to win his battle through the weakness of people who are willing to lay their gifts on the altar and say, Lord, I want to serve your body. I want to be a part of wherever the action is, whatever the action you want me to be involved in, even if it's uh, something that does not involve uh, any recognition. Now, I'll have to say that, you know, when it came to the Louisville situation, uh, there were some people who came around, but for the most part, the church either ignored it and hoped it would go away or they spoke against them. Oh, you shouldn't be, you know, disobeying the government. But thankfully, there were people in the body who gathered, came over there. And even though they were a minority, they felt weak. Again, God did a miracle because why? The body was out there doing what it was supposed to be. And so I thought it was significant after the Friday night meeting that a man came up to Steve afterwards and he said, you know, I'm one of those guys that's been kind of laying low because I'm afraid to have my name out there. I don't want a legislator to know that I'm homeschooling and not going through all the, the hoops that are out there. But he said, I've recognized through what's been said here, I need to go to those legislative coffees. I need to start speaking. And this is what I think is the issue needs to happen. Think of the body as broader than Dominion Covenant Church. Uh, Think of what God has opened up. Rush Dooney was always big on this. The church is what? It's not an organization per se. There is an organizational church, but the church is God's people living 24 hours a day, seven days a week out there advancing the kingdom of God. That's the church that Christ is building that the gates of hell will not prevail against. And when... um, There is a part of the body that's being taken to court over homeschooling. We need to be strategizing. How can we help those people out? Um, 
church did that all the time in the first few centuries. Be a big issue, somebody thrown into jail or something. And you'd get 20,000 people that would come and march around the governor's uh, office, you know, in the first three, four centuries. They would do it peacefully and they would say, look, we want to be loyal citizens, but there's lots of us. It's not just a few people. And um, I think we need to be writing letters and encouraging the homeschooling movement in Germany that is coming under incredible attack right now. People being thrown into jail uh, and their kids being taken away from them. They're part of the body. Okay, I think it'd be great if somebody started a pal night, prayers and letters night, where once a month, you know, the, all the research is out there. and You know, which businesses we need to write to and and, uh, you know, which senators and legislators and other people that we need to write to. But it's getting involved where there's a particularly good Christian candidate that is running for office strategizing. How do we best get behind them? That's what the Joshua generation uh, project is all about. In fact, it's getting young people to go to some of these key races that are winnable uh, if we can get enough information out. And so they'll get, you know, 60, 70 young people going to that city and campaigning for uh, for a candidate. Now, if the Christian that's running for office is not fit for office, what we might want to do is call that guy up and say, you, you really need to step down from your running for office because uh, you do not have the worldview that is needed in America. In fact, to start you off, we're giving you this book. We want you to read it. We'll get you behind you if you get a good worldview. But it doesn't mean you automatically go behind any Christian who runs. But the body needs to be thinking globally, strategically. It needs to be thinking more than just how can we build up Dominion Covenant Church? See, community is not for the purpose of self-serving. It's for exalting and lifting up the cause of Christ. What are some other things we need to recognize? We need to recognize the opportunities for ministry that the Lord places before us. Analyze what is God providentially doing in my life. I need to recognize. I need to be uh, flexible and creative. So ask yourself, how could I better use my home to advance the cause of Christ? Not just for the church. You might want to do that. The Lord may lay that upon your heart. But in general, how can I use my home better? How can I use my hobby better uh, to advance the cause of Christ? And our ministry may need to change as situations change. And so just because you started a ministry doesn't mean you have to continue it for umpteen years. Don't get stuck in a rut. Always be sensitive. Lord, what is it you want me to do in this coming week? <clears throat> in my earlier ministry, um, I think... I didn't recognize I let a lot of great opportunities just go past me because I was so focused on what I thought needed to be done rather than asking God, Lord, what are you providentially opening for me to do? <clears throat> what are some other things we need to recognize? Paul wanted a people who could recognize the difference between truth and error in verses 13 through 14. I think the church is in the mess that it is today because it lacks this word. It lacks spiritual recognition. And I think we need to pray the prayer in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 that the Lord would open up the eyes of our understanding so that we could see the power of God at work in us, power of God at work all around us and the things that God uh, wants us to be involved in. Isaiah says, I am the Lord who teaches you to profit. If you want to profit, you must constantly look to Him for wisdom to recognize. Now, the second word is trust. Man, it takes trust. It takes faith to believe the things that Paul's been saying in these first uh, four chapters. And I think part of Paul's point in quoting Psalm 68 and verses 8 through 10 is that we don't labor in hopes that we're going to gain the victory. Instead, we labor and we speak and we pray out of a realization that the victory has already been achieved. Now, those are two totally different approaches. The first approach is basically begging God, please, Lord, we need something, but you're holding some cards under the table uh, just in case God doesn't come through and you're really not thinking he's going to come through. Whereas the other one is thanking God for the victory and going out in the obedience of faith. That's a kind of prayer that really honors uh, the Lord. And so there needs to be a trust. When you confront demons... You need to know that their defeat was already won in Christ Jesus on the cross. You don't argue with demons. 
What you do is you command them with the authority that you have as one who is already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Ephesians 2, verse 6. When you find a brother or a sister in bondage, you don't go and think, oh, this is just a hopeless case. You go in the confidence that Christ has already purchased their freedom from that captivity and into captivity to Himself. Now, that means that this person can only be in bondage on the areas he's letting Satan have him in bondage in. And so, as you go to this person with the utmost confidence, God can free you from this, your confidence can spill over, be infectious into his life. And if you tell him, look, you need to be operating with a total faith. God has given to you everything that you need to get out of this problem that you're in. Let's strategize on what God's uh, plan is uh, in the Scriptures. Uh, So, coming... Uh, with confidence. Look at what Paul has already told us in chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's already in the bank. All you need to do is be writing the checks, signing them with Christ's name. Uh, Take a look at the authority that He's already given to us in chapter 2 verse 6. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of our union with Christ, his victory is our victory. And it says that his victory has given him the legal basis for filling all things with his kingdom. Or if you prefer the translation I have, of fulfilling all of the prophecies or fulfilling his purposes in in the kingdom. And really, any of those three ways, it doesn't matter which way you look at it. The first interpretation is praying, thy kingdom come. The second interpretation is praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy prophecies be done as it is uh, as you've given in the scriptures. So really, the end result doesn't matter which way you interpret that. It's indicating that Christ's victory is guaranteed and we need to be a people of hope and a people of faith. The third word is submit, and this is a big one. Verse 8 indicates we have been taken captive to Christ, and a captive doesn't call the shots, does he? You were placed here on earth not to selfishly pursue your own interests. Some people do, but that's not what you've been placed here on. The home that you have, your job, your spouse, your children, they're all a stewardship trust, and you need to be relating to them as God wants you to. And that's why Christ says, you can't be my disciple unless you give up all and follow me. Can't even be his disciple unless you give up everything. Now, the neat thing about that, and we're not even going to get into that aspect. You look in Mark chapter 10, when you give up everything to the Lord, he gives exactly the same things back 100 fold. And so that's the cool thing. You can't outgive God. Like Isaiah says, I am the Lord who teaches you to profit. And so God is for you. He wants you to profit in your submission, but you're not going to profit a lick if you don't submit to his will. You will not profit. And so the question is, are you captive to Christ? Are you asking Christ continually, what do you want me to use this or that for? How can I more effectively serve Christ? Bring your sleep, your playtime, your family time, your community time. Bring it all into submission to His will because He claims everything. And it really doesn't matter how silly or insignificant the command is. It calls for submission. Now, some people think that, yeah, I, I, to- I totally submit to Christ. Not a problem. But God always gives ways by which we can measure whether we truly are in submission. And just as he says, you can't claim to love God if you don't love the brethren. You can't claim to submit to Christ if you're not submitting to the visible human authorities that he has placed in your life as representatives of him. And so let's take a look at a couple of these. Turn to chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Okay, so... God has put parents as authorities over children's lives. And if you're not submitting to your parents, you're not submitting to Christ, which means you're robbing yourself of the Lord's power and of his blessings. Well, let's look at another one. Uh, Take a look at chapter five and verse, well, five and verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
And so wives, when you are not submitting to your husbands, he is saying you're not submitting to Christ. Why? Because he is the visible representation of the Lord in your life. That's a measurement by whether or not you have a submission to Christ. Husbands, he says the same thing earlier. Uh, You need to submit to the civil government. And when you fail to submit to the civil government, which is God's minister to you for good, He's God's authority in your life. You're modeling to your children and to your wives. Rebellion is an okay thing. Uh, We are all called to submit to the elders of the church in, uh, in this chapter. Now, when authorities overstep their authority and they begin to command things that they have no authority to be commanding, if you submit at that point, then you are complicit with their rebellion. And so there's an integrity check here. It's always in the Lord, right? That we do this, uh, that we do this submission. But when there is a submission to human authority that is godly, there is a spiritual power that is gained. Why? It's because God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And James says He gives more grace. It's a wonderful thing. It's an irony in life. And so we must... First of all, recognize, trust, submit. Fourthly, we must serve. Verse 12 says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, the word ministry means simply service. And the word the is not in the Greek. You can look it up in the Greek. It's not as if it's there's one service within the church. Um, uh, Service is far broader than church service. But this verse is one of many that calls all of God's people servants. Now, ultimately, we serve Christ, but in verse 12, he indicates we serve Christ by serving each other for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, think of what a difference we could make in America if absolutely every Christian was strategic and was biblical in the way in which they served the body, served Christ out in their communities. America would be a totally different country. We've got so many Christians out there, though, that are passive and simply will not allow their candle to shine out in the public. And we need to call that passivism what it really is. It's rebellion against Christ. It's a failure to be a servant of Christ as he has called us to be. Okay, lastly, we must anticipate. There's coming a time when wimped out Christianity is going to give place to full orb Christianity. And when that happens, it would be wonderful if you could say, hey, I had a part to play in that reformation. I had a part to play. Look at how full orb this is going to be. Verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's an incredible promise. That says at some point in history, uh, the, the church is going to grow so much that heresy is going to be gone. They're all going to have one statement of faith. Uh, it's going to be uh, a, a statement of faith that's worldwide. There's going to be a full knowledge of God. There's going to be a mature Christianity. Well, is that not exactly what the prophets had foretold? They said there's coming a time in history when we will all see eye to eye and all speak the same thing. That's Isaiah 52, verse 8. They foretold a time when the knowledge of God, the glory of God, would be as full of the earth as the waters covering the ocean beds. Habakkuk 2, 14. It's an awesome vision to be striving for. It predicts that of the increase of Christ's kingdom and of peace. There would be no end. Isaiah 9. That the church would batter down the gates of hell. Matthew 16, 18. That all nations and all kings would serve the Lord. Psalm 72. And that's the goal of community. That Christ would be lifted up wherever we are uh, in life. Now, if those five words would characterize our church. Man, there's an incredible amount that we could do in this city and the cities that are all surrounding here. In fact, I believe demons would tremble. Demons would tremble if we had those five words characterizing Uh, uh, every one of us. Now, let's end by very, very quickly. I'm just going to skim over the outline very, very quickly uh, looking at Christ's long-term goals for the church. I've already read verse 13, but the first phrase till we all come implies a process of time. They haven't arrived yet. Next phrase implies that this unity cannot be short-circuited the way many ecumenical movements do. 
you don't have unity at the expense of truth. Almost all of the movements out there, with, with two exceptions that I know of, try to have an abbreviated, you know, statement of faith that you can fit in one little paragraph. Now, uh, don't set your sights low. He defines it as unity of the faith. Okay? And he's talking about the object of faith, what we believe. The, the next phrase further defines this unity by indicating it's a unity based on knowledge. No dumbed-down, touchy-feeling, group-hug Christianity. No, you can't neglect knowledge. Okay, it's a unity based on knowledge. The next phrase indicates a unity based on maturity. To the perfect man, or as some translate it, to a mature man. To the measure of the stature, there's another term that indicates growth. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Every one of those phrases knocks down the kind of uh, false unities that are vying for our attention in the church. Now, I have to admit, this is, <laughs> this is an incredibly bold vision that Paul sets before us. And some people think, well, you know, Paul's probably using hyperbole here. It's got to be exaggeration. There is no way we could have that kind of unity here on planet Earth. Well, that's why I say that the word faith or trust is a word that's got to characterize our church. When you can really believe the eschatological promises of Scripture, it'll give you an incredible vision that will drive you far, far more than the false promises ever drove the communists. Paul goes on, he adds phrase to phrase to give us a sense of honor and satisfaction about the cause that we're working for. In verse 14, he casts aside the miserable, weak efforts at unity, but he does imply that it's not going to happen overnight, that we should no longer be children. That's an image of growth, maturing, needs, needs patience. A child doesn't grow up overnight, does he? So we, we can expect that there has been growth of doctrine, there's been growth in many areas, and it can accelerate over a period of time, but it does take time. Um, but then he indicates that we can hasten the time when the church is no longer unstable, what he calls being tossed to and fro, if we ourselves refuse to be tossed to and fro. That implies you're studying doctrine. Let me tell you something that's a little secret. Unfortunately, it's a well-held secret. Most people don't realize systematic theologies were written to be read, not to sit on a shelf. <laughs> They're great. Now, some people think, oh, man, how can I read through all of that? But read a section and ask God, OK, what difference will this doctrine make in my life? Doctrine is practical. Unfortunately, a lot of systematic theologies don't tell you how it's practical. You can ask me about it, but they are meant to be read. You can't be tossed to and fro. Go back to the old paths. Leave behind, it says here, every unstable doctrine, every wind of doctrine. And that puts you into a place where you can bring the rest of the body to put aside all of those strange winds of doctrine. Which again, I just encourage you guys, get advice when you buy books. Don't just go into parables and say, oh, that looks like a neat cover. I'll buy that book. 90% of the stuff that's out there is rubbish. It is junk. Go back to the old paths. Buy the Reformers and buy the Puritans. And there are good guys that are writing today too, but they're not very well known. Read the good stuff and stop wasting your time on the parables trash that's out there. I'm oh, sorry for dissing a, you know, a store. They've got some good books, but boy, you have to hunt for them. <clears throat> now, so many people have been taken in by the garbage out there. I know it's very easy to get cynical uh, when we live in an era that's described far more by verse 14 than it's described by verse 13. But our commander in chief calls us in verses 15 through 16 to press on towards maturity and do everything we can to help the whole body to press on to maturity. Not just Dominion Covenant Church, the whole body. We need to be involved in reformation. And so it says, speaking the truth in love. It is not a loving thing to let the body go blindfolded toward a, a cliff without warning them. It's not a loving thing. Speak the truth in love. People think it's not loving if you tell people they're wrong. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. If they're heading toward a cliff, you know, you tell them they're wrong. You tap them on the shoulder and say, look, guy, you're going to go over a cliff here. You're wrong in your doctrine. Speaking the truth in love. After all, it's not important that other people like you. That's what we want, isn't it? People to like us. What we should desire is that people conform to the image of Christ. Every one of you is called to be a part of this reformation. 
And so this is the goal of history. Verse 16 goes on by pointing to a spiritual union achieved by grace from whom the whole body joined and knit together. It involves every Christian doing his part by what every joint supplies. Every part does its share. It involves an effective rather than a haphazard use of grace. The effective working by which every part does its share. It involves finally mutual edification and love. He says for the edifying of itself in love. I don't know about you, but I am pumped. I am excited by a kingdom vision like that. There's a lot of visions out there, you know, church visions that are set out that don't really inspire me very much. I tell you what Paul writes here inspires me. And I think it is a vision that is worth fighting for. It is a vision that is worth dying for. And I would urge you to see as part of your calling to advance this vision to other churches, other people, wherever it is. We're part of a bigger body than Dominion Covenant Church. For those of you who are already taking this seriously, you're trying to make a difference in the world. I know it can be discouraging and I would suggest that you read the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 4, the people of Judah got discouraged and they said, the strength of the laborers is failing. There's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And Nehemiah told them, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your houses. You know, there's so many fronts on which the battle needs to be fought that it can be unnerving. But God has put you in front of one part of the wall. And if we are not willing to fight and if we are not willing to build, there's no guarantee we will not lose our children and our grandchildren, the houses that we have built. And they could all be taken away. We've got to get out there and do something. And Nehemiah's plan was a good one. What he did is he assigned every family to a section of the wall that they were responsible for. In other words, it's not just a socialistic endeavor where the church gets the credit, but everybody's doing their part. No, every person has their own ministry. Every person has their calling from the Lord. Some people have far greater gifts and are going to have a much bigger section of the wall. But anyway, he placed them in front of the wall. When there was attack over here, all of the people would run to that section to fight on that section. But they still had their calling that they were responsible for. And all the people honored that. And it's interesting, because the people did that, the wall went up in an amazingly short period of time. Well, in a similar way, God has called together numerous uh, families in, in Omaha and Council Bluffs and the surrounding area. Each, I believe, God has called to a portion of the wall that they need to be involved in. Now, you may not know what your portion is. He is your Nehemiah. He is the one who apportions it for you, not Phil Kaiser. You need to be going to the Lord and saying, Lord, what is it? What ministry do you want me involved in? What strategic way can I help out the kingdom at large? And it's important that you, realize, that you realize that what you do right now could affect whether your children carry on the vision or not. If you are self-seeking, self-serving, and not sacrificial in your kingdom perspective, I guarantee you, your kids will take that much further than you have. Guarantee. If you have the vision that is here and you're living out this vision, your kids will also take that much further. But what vision you cast for your family is going to make a big difference as to whether that portion of the wall is going to completely fall apart in the next generation. Take it seriously. The church is here not to rob you and pull you away from your callings. The church is here as community to encourage you, to keep on keeping on, to resource you, to network you, to pray for you, to equip you, to teach you how to do the things that are out there. But I don't see the New Testament church as having a billion programs. Some people wonder, how come we don't have this program, that program, the other program? Because if you're in part of all of those programs, you're never going to do your portion of the wall that God has assigned you to be a part of. So please take seriously that the community is just a means to a greater end of exalting Christ in all of the world, extending His kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You. I thank You so much that You have given Your grace, Your giftings, and have even strategically placed every single person in this congregation where they are uh, for uh, the particular ministry that is before them. We know that there are seasons of life and sometimes the things that you have called them to do will change. But I pray that you would open up the eyes of their understanding so that they could recognize their role in your kingdom. Father, that 
we as a community of believers would be effective, whether it's in the small groups or in our times where we're chatting together, or eating over meals, that we would be effective in encouraging and stimulating one another unto good works. Father, bless us as leaders to know how we can not be recruiting people for our pet projects, but how we can discern how best to equip people for the tasks that You have called them to be involved in. Please, Father, we pray that You would open up the eyes of our understanding. May Your kingdom come and may Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us not to doubt that incredible vision that Your will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us not to doubt the incredible promises that You have strewn all throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Help us not to be like the ten spies who went into the land of Canaan and said, nope, can't be done. But Father, may we uh, have, instead of a grasshopper theology of those ten spies, a theology and a vision that realizes if You are for us, who can be against us? Father, the National Education Association is a Goliath in the land. And it's uh, seeking to do everything that it can to promote humanism and ungodliness in the next generation. Father, we not only ask You that You would tear it down, we commit ourselves to doing what we can to tear down this Goliath. Father, there is in our land a huge Goliath that has infected most of the big corporations, has infected almost every level of government called homosexuality. And Father, it seems frustrating sometimes that our voice is not heard. And yet, I thank You that You have put us into a position of smallness and weakness and vulnerability so that Your grace and Your power will be magnified when that Goliath is cast down. Give to us the stones, the smooth stones that need to be sent sailing through the air to knock Goliath down. Father, You have allowed because of the laxity of Your people and their unwillingness to get involved, their passivity, You have allowed many giants to creep up in our nation. The Scriptures have been cast out of the courtrooms, Lord. Uh, uh, We desire, uh, Father, that uh, judges would judge according to Your Word. The legislators would not be embarrassed in the least about acknowledging Your sovereignty over every area of life. Uh, Father, uh, uh, the movement is to take in God we trust off of our coins. And uh, it would certainly be consistent to take it off because our nation does not trust You at all. But Father, we, as a part of Your larger body, believe, believe You, Lord, that You can slay these giants of humanism that have crept into the civil government. And I pray that we would not just feel hopeless and hide within our homes, but we would exhort one another and stir one another up to good works to take hold of the things that we can do. Father, when I see all that You have done through the homeschooling movement, You've cast down incredible giants, and yet there are more giants yet that need to be cast down. I pray that You would close down every government school in this nation that is a tool of Satan to spew out uh, all kinds of wickedness and evil and to disciple our children. And I pray that You would wake up Christians who are sending their children to the Canaanites to be discipled. Wake them up, O God, to the horrible sin that they are engaging in. And I pray, Father, that You would enable us as we exhort them and stir them up to good works to have the right words fitly spoken in due season to pull them out of the snare that they have found themselves in. Father, uh, there are uh, giants of uh, the abortion industry in our nation. And uh, we can feel hopeless when we have gone to the abortion clinic and in other ways have sought to stop this. And yet, Father, the church of Jesus Christ at large has done so little. There is hardly even a Gideon's army that is out there. And yet, Father, You wrought Your victories through Gideon's armies. And I pray that You would close down every abortion mill in this country and that You would cause those who have been murderers 
uh, to be executed according to your vengeance. Father, we ask that you would uh, hear the prayers of this church as we pray the imprecatory psalms that you have commanded us to pray. That you would bring judgments upon the land, redemptive judgments. That uh, at times it would be people being destroyed by being converted and turned into, into friends so that they are no longer enemies. We think of Psalm 68 that we have been looking at and that Paul quoted. And Father, uh, in that psalm, uh, you, you uh, used a mighty host to proclaim your word. May each person here and each person in the church of Jesus Christ worldwide be faithful to proclaim your word wherever you have stationed them. Father, give us a world-conquering faith. And we'll be sure to bless you and praise you for all of the results that come from it. In Christ's name, Amen.